turn to John chapter 1, the gospel according to John chapter 1. A mentor of mine told me years ago that he said, you can learn a lot from ODGs. You ever heard of ODG? I was like, what are you talking about? I have no idea. He said it stands for old dead guys. And I was like, what do you, how am I going to learn from those guys? He said, what I mean is a lot of our great uh, people of the past wrote books and wrote sermons. People that we quote here often at church like Spurgeon and people like that who are, of course, you know, passed away many, many years ago. And he really turned me on to reading not just the current Christian books, but I've found, and I know some of you have too, that reading the older stuff sometimes is, is way more beneficial sometimes. And, and one of those guys that I've read after is named A.W. Tozer. Tozer wrote a small book called The Knowledge of the Holy, and if you're looking for something to read this year, that's a great little book to pick up. But in Tozer's book, The Knowledge of the Holy, this ODG wrote, What comes into our minds... When we think about God, is the most important thing about us. He said, worship is pure or low, depending on the worshiper's thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most important fact about any man is not what he at any time might say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. He goes on to say, we tend by secret law of the soul to move toward a mental image of God. And this is true not only of the Christian, but also of the church. He says, always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. One of my goals as we preach through John this year is that me and you as individuals and us as a church would, would entertain higher views of who God is, more pure views, more right, accurate views of who this God we worship is. And if we are able through the Word and the Spirit to see and know God the way we should, then that will affect our lives. It will affect how we come to gather together as a church, how we worship, and how we live if we get a right view, a more clear view of who God is. I hope you'll see that in today's sermon as well. And so if you found John chapter 1, find verse 14, and we will read through verse 18. If you found it, would you say word? Verse 14, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man 
hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. This morning, I want to give you four points from, four truths about Jesus from this short but very important text. Our first truth is that Jesus became human. He became man. There's so much, by the way, in verse 14, but the gist of verse 14 is that Jesus Christ came to earth as a man. We see, of course, in verse 14, it says, the word was made flesh, and we know what that word, word, means. We know who it refers to, right? What verse in John 1 can we go back to to reference the word, word? Verse 1, right? Look back at verse 1. It says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. Verse 2 says, he was in the beginning with God. And so we know that that capital W word here in, in John 1 refers to Jesus Christ. And interestingly, I was looking through this, um, this is the last time, verse 14 is the last time that the Gospel of John is going to call Jesus the Word. After this, he's going to call him Jesus or the Lord. I thought that was kind of interesting to note. But we know a few reminders from a couple of weeks ago when we had our last sermon here that Jesus was not created, that he is eternal God, but at the incarnation, he took on flesh. When we say Jesus took on flesh, we say that he, he came to dwell among us. That's what the verse says. And that word dwell there, um, the idea is like the Old Testament tabernacle, that tent of worship. And so literally we can say Jesus came and, and dwelt among us. He tabernacled. He came to live among us. And one of the most important things about Jesus coming to, be, to live here is that Jesus was like us. Now, we've already emphasized the deity of Christ a couple of weeks ago, and we're going to keep emphasizing that because Jesus Christ is God, right? Anybody that says he's not is apart from Scripture. Jesus Christ is God, but we also must emphasize this truth as well, that Jesus was fully human. We believe that. It's one of our doc key doctrines. It is a very key doctrine. It's very important. And as he came to live here and take on humanity, he became like us. Think about the ways in which Jesus was like us. Some of you this morning are sitting here, and it's only 10.50, but you're already hungry. Jesus also hungered, didn't he? Some of you are thirsty. I am at this very moment. Jesus was thirsty. Jesus, some of you are very tired. Jesus experienced tiredness and fatigue, didn't he? He experienced pain. He experienced joy. All the ups and downs that we experience, he experienced. And was like us in every way, except really one very important way. He never sinned. He was even tempted like us, but he never sinned. And it, it, I'm going to point out in a moment why that's so important. But Jesus came to be with us, and he came in a sense to be like us. By the way, Jesus also did other things that we do. He prayed. He read scripture. Could you imagine hearing Jesus pray, by the way? And we can imagine it if we read John 17 and other passages. But, man, Jesus prayed, he read scripture, he submitted himself to the Father. And in his, in his humanity, this is so important, he was able and willing to suffer and die in his humanity. So we must notice the, as I said here, the union of Christ's nature. I remember a couple of weeks ago we talked about the Trinity. And I told you that might be the greatest mystery of the 
Christian faith, the Trinity. But the union of Christ's two natures in one person is also a great mystery. And, it, and again, it should give us a higher view of who Christ is, not a lower view. This is one of those things, honestly, that, yes, we should, we should try to see the Scripture on it, but we're never fully going to understand some things like the Trinity and the union of Christ in one person. I don't believe, not on this side of glory anyway. We're never going to understand fully these things, but we see that they are true. And we affirm, we affirm the humanity of Jesus Christ. Did you know that Jesus is still human even now? He did not lose his humanity when he ascended back to heaven. So we remember his humanity, but the question has to be asked. It must be asked, why? Why did Jesus have to be man? Why, did, why couldn't he have come as God only and d- did the things he did? Well, I showed you here that he had to be man, first of all, to sympathize with our weaknesses, to be tempted, to go through the things that we go through, and Jesus can certainly sympathize with us, and then he must be Christ in order to, must be man in order to suffer in our place. He had to be man to do these things. I also want to remind you here why he had to be God. Why did he have to be God? To secure righteousness for us and to satisfy God's wrath for us. It is important for us to know, church, and I know most of you do, but I want to hammer the point home. That Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. And if he was not both those things, he could not have done the thing he did in salvation history for us and our sins. I'm going to quote J.C. Ryle this whole sermon series. Uh, He said this. He compared Jesus to Adam. um, And he said the second Adam, Jesus, is far greater than the first Adam was. The first Adam was only a man, so he fell The second Adam was God as well as man, and so he completely conquered. We affirm the humanity of Jesus Christ. Our second truth, we're going to find this in verse 16, and that is that Jesus provides for his people. Verse 16 says, of his fullness we have all received grace for grace. By show of hands this morning, Who would say that God has provided for you? Every hand should go up, right? Obviously. He's provided for us. And if I ask you this morning to make a list of the things God has provided you, I imagine many of us would start with earthly things, probably. Some of us would say salvation, but we would probably be like, wow, he's given me life and health and family and friends and a church and and a job, and money, and retirement, and homes, and all these different things we could name that God has blessed us with, and all those things are important. I believe God certainly cares about all those things as he provides for us in an earthly sense, but I want you to think about, as we look at verse 16 this morning, that he also, and more importantly, provides for us in a spiritual sense. Of course, we know he provides for us in forgiving our sin and saving us. But there's so much more to the blessings of Christ than just our salvation. God did not save us and then leave us alone. He saves us and then he loves us and molds us and shapes us. And as he leads and guides us, he blesses us with many spiritual blessings. I love Ephesians chapter 1. It talks about some of the spiritual blessings that he blesses us with. Again, verse 16, look at it. It says, from his fullness, from the 
Christ and who he is, it says, all we have received grace for grace. First, let me talk about that word all there. Again, that doesn't mean that every person on earth has received grace the way we think about it. Although every person has received common grace, right? The most evil person on earth today, this morning, and received common grace, which is God gave them another day to live and gives them, you know, just life. But this means all those who have received Christ, all those who know Christ, we have all received from his fullness grace upon grace. Think about it. God gives us mercy, wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. Grace upon grace upon grace. How many of you like going to the beach? Some do, some like, nah. We went to the beach at the end of the summer, my wife and I, and we didn't take the kids, which was so different. So we just sat there and enjoyed it. With the kids, you're like chasing them all around, worried about them running out in the water and stuff. But by ourselves, we're just sitting there like, you know, what are we even doing here? But we would go sit down by the edge of the water, right? And the tide would wash in and, and feet and the legs, and it feels good. The water feels good and cold, and it goes back out. And you're just waiting for the next time it comes in. And sometimes it would come up a little higher, right? And sometimes it would, you know, not come up as high. But here's what I knew as I sat there for a few days. If you go down and sit on the beach, keep coming back. It never stopped. It would keep coming. I mean, for the whole week, we're there. It, the tide comes in and out. And I think that's a good illustration of the grace of God and grace upon grace. Is that as we sit in, the, in Christ, as we sit in our position as believers, His grace is an endless supply. He has an endless, boundless supply of grace for us, not only to be saved, but to make it through the tough stuff that we deal with in life. Again, I have to quote Ryle where he said that God's grace is constant, fresh, abundant, unfailing, and supplies all our needs. Man, some of us need to hear this this morning. That our God is, gives us grace upon grace. Have you ever been, has anyone ever been without in here? You ever, did some of y'all grow up without, didn't have much? You ever went to the fridge and opened the door and there's not much in there? Some people have had that experience. And, um, my, one of my favorite experiences about not having enough is during Hurricane Katrina, right? We were in South Mississippi and we were, you know, whatever, 15 days without water and power and all that, at least. I can't remember. And so we're just like eating scraps. We're just like making do. I mean, just, you know, doing what we have to do. And then we went to get gas. And I've told you all this before, but me and a friend of mine stayed in line for eight hours to get gas so that he can make it back to his home. And when we got to the pump, they're like, you can only get like $20 worth or whatever. Like, no, like we waited for eight hours for $20, but he needed it. And, but again, there was a, you know, we were out of gas. There wasn't as much gas, right? How about now? Have y'all been to shelves, to stores lately and their shelves empty? I go to Dollar General looking for sugar. I'm like, where's the sugar? <laughs> you know, but here's the point. Here's the point of those applications, those illustrations. In Christ, the shelves will never be empty. In Christ, the pumps will never dry up he is an endless well of grace upon grace for his people and wow shouldn't we worship him shouldn't we serve him shouldn't we praise him Um, we need him today even if you sit here this morning and you think i'm fine you need him today to help you we all do number three our third point i want you to notice that jesus is greater he is superior, would be a good word to use there. 
We'll see this um, in verse 17. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. I think Moses is one of the key figures in the Scripture. And we know him, of course, famously from Exodus, where he led the people out of, out of Egypt, led the people of Israel out of Egypt, and he, he helped them, led them through the wilderness wanderings, and did so many things for God's people. But I think he's best known, right, for receiving the law and just being close to God, right? He, he would go up on Mount Sinai, and God's presence would be there. He would come down glowing, right, because he'd been in God's presence. And receiving the law of God, him receiving the Ten Commandments, and the hundreds of other laws that went with that, um, is, you know, I would say is his most important thing, and we see it here. The law was given to us and through and by Moses as God gave it to Moses. And we know that the law of God is good. The law is good, it's holy, it's just, it's important, but can the law save sinners? It cannot justify us. The problem with it is that it has a but that purpose alone cannot make us right with God. Um, we think about uh, Galatians 3.24. Let me quote this to you. Uh, it says, Then the, the law came as our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The law cannot make us better. It cannot make us right with God. It just reveals how messed up we are. Well, let me, let me prove it to you. Let me prove it to you through the Ten Commandments. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Has any one of us ever been guilty of putting something else ahead of the Lord? All of us. The second one, don't make an image unto God or before God. Now, most of us probably don't have a golden calf sitting in our house on a mantle, but have we put idols in front of the Lord? I think in America we're experts at that, at putting idols in front of the Lord, and we're all probably, we've all been guilty. Number three, you should not take the name of your Lord God in vain. How many of us have done that in probably multiple ways? Let me, let me skip to number five, honor your father and mother. How many of us, at least at some point in our lives, have not honored our father and mother? You shall not kill. Thou shalt not kill. Now you say, well, I hadn't killed anybody. But what did Jesus say? If you've hated your brother, in a sense, you've, you've committed murder. How about thou shalt not commit adultery? Jesus said, if you've lusted after a woman, then you've committed adultery. We could go on and on through the commandments and be like, yeah, I've broken that one, I've broken that one, I've broken that one. And the point is, if your goal is to live by the Ten Commandments, you're going to be miserable fairly quickly. Because you're going to realize, I cannot keep up with all these laws. There are people in Jesus' day trying to do that. People in Jesus' day were trying to do that and add to that law. And that's why it was called, often called a burden or a weight that these Pharisees were putting on people. But it says the law was given through Moses. The law is good. And the law has a purpose. But something else is greater than the law. It says in verse 17, grace and truth came through Christ. In a sense, the law imprisons us. But Jesus sets us free. He is that key that unlocks the chains of the law. The law, as I said, is a heavy burden, but we know that Christ bore our burden. Christ, when he came, kept every prescription of the law perfectly. Half. 
That's pretty good, isn't it? Christ didn't just die for you. He lived the life you and I can never live. That when he did die, that sacrifice and that righteousness he gained by his perfect life was accounted to us for our righteousness. The law condemns, Christ forgives. Now, we can say this about anything, by the way. I'm not just trying to say Jesus is greater than the law, although he is. But Jesus is greater than anything and everything, right? He is the God. Our God is the supreme creator, the supreme being. Look at verse 15 with me. And I'm going to talk more about this next week. That's why I, didn't, I skipped it a moment ago. But we're here talking about John the Baptist again. And again, we'll talk more about him next week. But he said, this is he, Jesus, of whom I spoke. He that comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And again, John the Baptist had this great perspective, didn't he? That Jesus must increase and we must decrease. John the Baptist had this great perspective of Jesus Christ is superior. He is greater. I want you to imagine that you're, you're sick and you go to the doctor. You feel bad. You don't know what's wrong. You go to the doctor. The doctor does some tests. He comes in. He has a chart. And he says, hey, here's what's wrong with you. you know, here's, the, here's exactly what happened. Here's the test. All right, take care. You know, check out at the, at the front desk. Is that how you would leave that conversation? Your next question is, okay, doc, I see what's wrong with me. What am I going to do about it? What's the solution? What's the medicine? What's the treatment for my situation? No good doctor would diagnose without treating, right? The law is our diagnosis. Jesus Christ is the remedy. He's the answer. He's the treatment. The law shows us our sin the gospel through verse 16, grace and truth shows us our Savior. Let me move to our fourth point. We've seen here um, three things about Christ. Let's see the fourth one. First, he became man. He provides for his people. He is greater. And then he makes God known. Again, glance back to verse 14. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. But notice this next part. And we beheld, or we saw, his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of, and here's that phrase again, grace and truth. Now go to verse 18. No man has at any time seen God, but the only begotten, who is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Again, Moses was close to God. Would you agree? Moses was close to God. But in Exodus 33:20, listen to what God said to Moses. He said, "You cannot see my face, for there shall no man see me and live." God said that to Moses. So if I hear anyone say, "You know, I saw God the other day." I'm like, "We need to talk about that." <laughs> you did, you saw what? But here's my point. Just because we can't see him physically doesn't mean we can't know him fully. Just because we can't see him doesn't mean we can't know him. And the way we know him, of course, is through his spirit and through the word. But when Jesus came, he was the express word, capital W, of God. And everything that we need to know about God is fully revealed in the Son. 
And we're going to see that, and we're going to go through this book this year, Lord willing, and we're going to see Jesus do miracles. We're going to see him have times of... We're going to just watch his actions around the crowds and around the disciples. And as we see his, hear his words and see his actions, as we see all of that, we're not just studying him like a subject in school or like we're in a class, but we're studying the life of Jesus that we know him more because he is the revelation of what God would want us to see and know and hear. And as we study Jesus this year, we're going to see the wisdom of God, the power of God, the love of God, the holiness of God, and it's going to be represented throughout all the different things he does in this book. He has, verse 18, declared him. Just reading the first 18 verses of John, as I move here toward my conclusion, um, the first 18 verses, to me, are such an uplifting, Christ-centered passage. I'm almost sad to move on from verse 18, because I just love these first 18 so much. Because they just uplift Christ, and they make my mind think about who He is and His nature. And so let me move to my conclusion with this question. Can we ever honor Christ too much? Can we give Him too much love? Can we give Him too much praise? Can we give Him too much of ourselves? And the answer is, of course, no. As a matter of fact, we're in danger of giving giving Him way too less of ourselves than we are giving Him too much. I would imagine for many of us, We give him not enough time in Bible reading or prayer or church attendance. Not enough of our time in sharing the gospel with others. Not enough of our time in just how we live. And as I go back to Tozer, are your your thoughts of God too big or too small? Do you see him as Jesus Christ, Son of God, Son of Man, Savior of all who will believe, do you see him as that supreme, conquering king who will come back to reign? And if you see him as that, it will affect your life. Today, if you don't know this Jesus I'm talking about, you need to repent, believe, confess, and follow. Repent of your sin, believe in Christ and what he's done, confess him as Lord, and follow him with your life. But for all believers, I want to give you a final illustration. And this illustration is related to seeing who God is and savoring and worshiping who He is. I want you to imagine you're driving down the highway, and with you is a four-year-old child. All right, y'all with me? This means yes? A four-year-old child. You're driving down the highway. In the distance, you see a tower. And you tell the child, hey, you ask, how big is that tower? And she's like, I don't know, it's, way, it's far away. You're like, well, take, out, take your finger and your thumb and hold it up to that tower and kind of measure it and see how tall that tower is. And so she takes her pointer finger and her thumb and she does like this. And you're like, how big is that? And she looks at it and she says, well, that's, that's not a very big tower, Dad, or whoever you're with. That's not a very big tower. And you're like, yeah, that's, you're right, that's not very big. But you keep driving another four or five miles. You pull over beside the tower. You get out and you take her by the hand. You walk all the way up to the tower, and then she's doing this, right? 
And then you ask her again, how big is that tower? And she's going to be like, uh, it's, it's big, it's huge, it's tall, it's reaching to the sky. And you're like, hold up your fingers again. And you're like, is it that big? No, no, it's that big. It is a very big tower. How tall is it? Well, it's scary tall. Then you explain what you're getting at. The closer we, we were to the tower, the more we could see how big it really was. And that child, when she was close to the tower, she began to glorify the bigness of it and be amazed by the bigness of it. Now let me apply this to us today. The reason many people don't worship Christ and serve Christ the way the Bible tells us to is that they're not close enough to him to be amazed by him. And if you don't get close to him through his word and prayer and a church family, if you don't get close to him through those means which he has appointed for us to get close to him by, then it's no wonder you don't worship him more enthusiastically or more sincerely it's no wonder my wife was talking about someone and not related to anybody in this room and she said that person just doesn't really seem like they're excited about church they don't really seem to care about the prayers they don't really participate in the songs they don't seem to care and I said there's a reason they don't care they're not just bored at church they don't know Jesus or they are so far away from him that they don't care. Or man, I just think the preaching's too long, or the preaching's too boring, or the music's too this and that. If you get close to Jesus, you're going to find something in biblical preaching. And when you get that close, you're going to be, and you're going to want to worship him. And I can imagine that four-year-old child, by the way, saying, hey, let's take a picture of this tower. I want to show mom, or I want to show my friends. All right, so she's so excited about this tower, she wants to show, tell other people about the tower. We get close to Jesus, and we're amazed by who he is as we see Again, if it takes grip of our heart, we should at some point want to tell other people about the tower, about Christ. Let me come show you this tower. This tower is amazing. Let me come show you my Jesus, who is greater, who became man that he might suffer for us, who provides for us. Again, he's greater than the law, and he reveals to us what God is like. It is so important, church, for us to know these truths that we might see and know and savor and worship Christ. Let's pray.